Drones have long become part of our everyday vocabulary, but what exactly is going on with their development? Who are they currently being used to kill? And what is leading this drive to assassinate people with a method that creates such high civilian casualties? Today's author, Andrew Coburn, is a writer and lecturer on defense and US national affairs, and is the author of the book, Kill Chain, Drones and the Rise of High-Tech Assassins. Andrew, thanks very much for taking the time out to have a chat with me today. You're welcome. Uh, I um, uh, I was kind of surprised uh, at the beginning of your book to learn that there were uh, there were attempts to remotely fly planes back as far as World War One. Yeah, 1916. Um, the U.S. experimented with them. The idea was to remotely, you know, to fly well drones, in fact, uh, over the front lines to attack German front lines in. Uh, on the Western Front, and actually, it was kind of a typical drone problem in that a drone, you know, program, in that it, um, it, it they they turned out to be totally unreliable and actually <laughs> really didn't live up to their promises and uh, tended to crash all the time. So it was really drone drones really started as they went on. But what was the technology like then? I mean, what what were they? They were it was about uh, radio. Well, they had radio. You know, it was all very. You know, it looks kind of crude compared to the shiny, streamlined, transcontinental things we have nowadays. But it was, you know, essentially the same idea, which was, uh, um, you know, remotely controlled, uh, you know, a radio controlled from the ground. Obviously, the range wasn't great and you didn't have any kind of beyond visual range capability. But, uh, you know, the principles were really the same and, you know, always have been. So what... what was the technological advance that really enabled our, our current drone program? Really, it was GPS. Um, until you had GPS, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't know, you couldn't really navigate them. It had to be, had to be line of sight. But with GPS, uh, that all changed. Now you could, you could know exactly, you could guide the thing, you could navigate it anywhere, really. And the other thing that big technological advance was really the whole expansion of uh, satellite and communications. So um, what they in drone in the drone world they call remote split operations, you could actually you know control things even half a world away as we know as we've seen. Could you maybe also paint a bit of a picture for us? What what does the, what does the drone operator see? He sees well. He sees a number of things. He sees various screens. If you look at those pictures, they you know they show all the time of you know the drone, uh, a drone control station in um, in uh, in Nevada or Creech Air Force Base in Nevada is where most of them are based. He's looking at a screen. He's looking first of all at what the drone is is seeing. Um, it's the main thing he's looking at, which is a uh, depending on what time of day it is or day or night, um, is either a day TV picture of the ground, he's usually uh, looking in any kind of contested territory, he'd be at an attitude of around 15,000 feet, probably, it might be a bit less. And the quality of the image that they're seeing? Well, not so great at that range, um, especially with the day TV with the wide aspect thing. Um, he's looking at, um, he's really looking at blobs, I mean, for people, um, very hard to see a person. With the day, with the uh, with infrared, uh, again, it's you know with any kind of wide aspect, it's 
you know, he's merely not seeing anything too distinct. I mean, it's hard for him to tell, you know, a tr well, a truck from a tank. Um, for all the time. It's very hard to make out targets. With the spotter TV, it's better, but then you're only looking at something the size of two or three tennis courts. So, um, you know, it's very hard to see what's going on around it. Uh, that gets a bit better. So, you know, there's been a lot of ballyhoo about, and you see in movies like Zero Dark Thirty or American Sniper and things like that, it all looks fantastic. You're getting, um, you know, sort of high-def TV pictures from wherever the drone happens to be, but that's not the case in reality. So um, th there's a there's a wide range of uses for for drones. I mean, your book is is focusing on the assassination side of things. So our, sure. our conversation is going to take a, a quite a severe jolt in that direction. Um, and so, if if there's someone the U.S. thinks is a high value target and they want to assassinate them, I guess well, I guess first of all, how do you get onto that list? Um. Well, you know, there's a big bureaucracy now um, that's evolved over the years. Um, it's sort of, it's a, there's two lists, really. I mean, they try and refine them all the time. There's the military list, and then there's the CIA list. And they sort of do, do coordinate because um, the military has its um, own area of operations in, uh, uh, well, it did have Yemen, not so much anymore, uh, Somalia, um, particularly it's, it's, it's happy hunting ground, whereas the CIA traditionally kept Pakistan, the excuse being that uh, Pakistan wanted deniability. Uh, they wanted to be able to say, oh, we don't know anything about American drone attacks. And, uh, you know, CIA operations are um, traditionally, you know, they're non-disclosable, so to speak. They're covert, <laughs> which is uh, kind of sounds ridiculous since, you know, you're blowing up people from with unmanned airplanes, it's not very covert. But anyway, so that's the, um, and so they have this, what they, the CIA particular, they set up uh, Brennan, the CIA director, he set up when he was counterterrorism advisor at the White House, he set up what's called the disposition matrix, which is a whole sort of bureaucratic mechanism by which uh, people draw up lists, um, at, for instance, at the CIA counterterrorism center. They get, they also get this input that goes to the national Counterterrorism Center, which is this sort of super bureaucracy, which was set up after 9/11. But the um, but there's other people, you know, have inputs too. For instance, it turned out the drug enforcement people, the DEA, and even um, foreign uh, police agencies like the British uh, uh, drug enforcement people could actually submit names to the uh, the JPL, the Joint Priorities Effects List, which is kind of the master list in places like Afghanistan. Uh, for people slated for execution, so um, as I say, it's a it's a it's a complex bureaucracy. Which and the list grows and grows and grows. I mean, originally uh, George Bush, right after nine eleven, he sort of started the first list. Or the CIA gave him a list of about a dozen people they thought should be killed, which he of course approved, and he kept the list on his desk. And as word came in, they'd got, you know, got another one. He'd cross it out diligently and put the list back in his desk drawer. Well, that, you know, that list grew to 20, to 40, to 100, to 200, to 1,000, to many thousands. Um, and however many they kill, the list keeps on growing. Is it, um, what about in an operational area where it's in, 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 a, in, a, in a sort of Iraq, in a war type setting? Uh, what do you have to do to be justified to be attacked by a drone? 
Well, it depends. You can either be in Iraq, you mean in sort of not so much a counter-terrorist thing, in a, in a, in a sort of military situation. A more military setting. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, really, if you're sort of carrying, if you're carrying a gun, I mean, okay. if you're in an area somewhere where, you know, so, so they don't call them this anymore, but a free fire zone. And if you're carrying a gun, you know, and if you, they've decided you have hostile intent. Yeah. The other way is <laughs> they don't have to know who you are at all. It just, they decided from the way you're behaving uh, that you qualify as a threat. Um, it can be, uh, well, I give an exam various examples in my book. Um, for example, in, um, I think it was in around 2010 or 2011, it was decided that in, in the border areas of Pakistan, any group of armed men in a truck uh, heading towards Afghanistan constituted a threat. Of, you know, they were obviously hostile. They looked like they were bad people and possibly on the way to attack our troops in Afghanistan. So that got you a missile. Um, they attacked, um, I tell the story of an attack in um, 2011, which was a group of people, of village elders in a, in a village in uh, Pakistan, which has been much often attacked with drones called Detakal, uh, where they were having a jerga. It was actually a group of elders sitting around discussing about who had property rights to a local chromite mine. But they qualified as, a, um, as all you know, suitable victims because one of the attendees was a known Taliban commander. He was, he'd been invited because he controlled the area near the mine. So uh, any decision, you know, they needed him to make any decision they took about this mine uh, stick. So they blew up, you know, 40 people because one of them. But so anyone, so what got the other 39 or 36, actually, because he had his bodyguards with him too, uh, what got the other 36 people on the list was that they were in the company of a known designated target. So they were kind of posthumously enlisted in the, uh, in the ranks of Taliban terrorists. But, but what, I mean, this is something that this particular point continually kept coming up in my head as I was reading this, is what is the justification, uh, I mean, let's even put aside the moral justification, the legal justification for killing all of the civilians in an area around someone you want to assassinate? Well, they talk about proportionality. You know, um, Bill Clinton said at some point around a long time ago, in like 2001, he said, right after 9-11, I think, he said, oh, I was given the opportunity they could, thought they could kill uh, Osama bin Laden, but it would involve killing 300 civilians at the same time, and that was too many. So we know that 300 civilians is too many, or at least was then. Um, during the invasion of Iraq, this isn't strictly just drones, but um, in the invasion of Iraq in 2003, there was an edict issued by the Secretary of Defense that um, if you were attacking someone on the list, you know, they had this deck of cards, they had like 50 high priority targets that were, you know, cleared for immediate, ex you know, to be killed on site, headed, of course, by Saddam Hussein. And if you thought you were going to kill up to 30, I mean, 29 or fewer in a, in a strike, uh, that was okay. 29 or fewer civilians, that was, that was fine. You know, that was worth paying the price. Um, if it was going to be 30 or more, then you had to get permission. Uh, and the permission actually would be granted by the Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld himself. But in no case 
there were many occasions when permission was sought and in no case was it refused. I mean, we don't know. I don't, you know, there were cases when, you know, more, many, certainly more than 30 were killed and, you know, that was okay. So we don't know quite what the, they've never revealed what the okay level is. I mean, I can give you another example, which isn't so much talked about, but uh, as you remember, they killed Anwar al-Awlaki, you know, uh, an American citizen. And that was, you know, big decision by Obama himself decided, yes, he is a threat to the, you know, ongoing threat to the United States and it's okay to kill him. I mean, whether that was indeed okay is a matter for debate. But uh, um, then two weeks later, they killed his son. Now they said that, oh, no, 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 that was an accident. We didn't mean to kill his son. Um, that his son happened to be in a restaurant, happened to be, uh, was eating breakfast in a restaurant where there was also, they thought, in fact, I think it wasn't true, but they thought there was someone else, a non-American um, Yemeni terrorist was having breakfast there too. So they thought it was absolutely fine to blow away this entire restaurant and all the people having breakfast in it because there was someone they wanted to kill there. So it's a very squishy area, how they justify. And they've cooked up all sorts of legal justifications. When, when I was going through these sections of your book talking about this, I, I couldn't help in my mind try and um, uh, change the country. So if um, one of the, the, the top um, people that the U.S. desperately wants to assassinate, uh, and they and they justify, say, like you just said, destroying and or killing all of the people in a restaurant, and that's okay to kill them. If that person appeared in, to say, the U.K., uh, like I can't see that they would blow up an entire restaurant full of British citizens to kill one person. No, I don't think they would. <laughs> in fact, very clearly they wouldn't. No, it's really, I mean, it brings back to an essential point about drones as well as, you know, what you just got about uh, these extrajudicial ex executions. Is they're really only suitable for use in very, you know, weak or, or, or countries where the state is either gone away, like some, uh, or almost gone away, like Somalia or Yemen, or, you know, where the state has, you know, heavily compromised, like in Pakistan or or uh, Afghanistan, and it, um, not only you know, would it be unthinkable to use it in a, you know, a first world country, but um, it's, uh, it's also, you don't want to use it in a country with a properly working air defense system because drones are very easy to shoot down. What is, what is the mindset? I mean, what is this ideology that drives these assassinations? Or, or I guess, what I'm, why does the US see this as a successful strategy? Well, I think basically it was political. It really kept the political heat off um, off the administration. It could show they were doing something. I mean, initially, remember, the, they wanted to kill them, but they were also arresting people all over the place, you know, renditioning them and torturing them and, you know, throwing them into sort of oubliettes, into black site prisons. And that, you know, when that all came out, as it inevitably would, they had to discard that. So it decided, you know, it'd be tidier and easier and keep it off the front pages if they just killed them. Um, you talk in the book about the Israeli uh, internal security service guy, uh, Avi Dichter. Sure. And can you talk about maybe his influence um, and his ideas? Yeah, Avi Dichter, who was a very sort of influential um, head of Shabak, the Israeli internal security service. He had this whole notion that, well, you know, when people said, you know, you can't, you can't simply kill all the terrorists, you know, he, he, his belief was, yes, you can, that you can, as he put it, drain the barrel of terror. And if you keep killing enough of them, 
eventually, you know, they'll they'll give up, or there won't be any left, or you know, you'll have killed or certainly all possible candidates to as terrorist leaders. Um, and he pursued that. It was in the early two thousands when he had that job, and he pursued it with vigor, as have his successors. Um, and is that the ideology that's sort of pervasive in U.S. thinking? Well, it's interesting. Yes and no. It's interesting. I mean, they certainly have pursued it. Um, but it's interesting. I came across an interesting thing. The Israelis talk about mowing back. Well, let me say both in both places, they talk about mowing the grass uh, in terms of going in and killing a you know, bunch of what they're perceived as or nominated as terrorists or terrorist leaders. Uh, the Israelis say it as, you know, this is the way to go. This is a satisfactory operation. Like, you know, a homeowner, you know, you go out and mow the lawn once a week and that's accepted and you accept that the grass is going to go up, grow up again, and you go and mow it again. And the Israelis are sort of fine with that. The American, especially special forces people I talk to about this, they say we're just mowing the grass. And they said it a much more sort of, you know, despairing sort of way, like what a futile operation it is. We go and, you know, mow the grass, i.e. kill all the, you know, Taliban leaders in a particular, you know, province. It was, it was the context of this conversation. But we were just mowing the grass because they all, you know, six months later, you have to do it again. So what's the point? I thought it was an interesting divergence of sort of attitudes in both countries. Yeah, you do go into um, this quite a bit. You talked uh, you talked at length about um, Rex Rivolo um, and his analysis he did uh, about these targeted assassinations. Sure. Yeah. Generally, you know, the whole business, it's all based on sort of inference. You know, well, if we... Killing, killing the top bad guys on the other side must be a good idea, you know, so, you know, it stands to reason. So Rex uh, Ravolo, who was, um, I talk a bit, quite, a lot of, uh, quite a lot about him in the book. He was a former Vietnam fighter pilot who then became an uh, analyst, a very sort of high-powered analyst for the uh, uh, sort of branch of the Defense Department. And in 2007... Ravallo was uh, <clears throat> dispatched to Iraq, and he was attached to a very, became part of a very secret, uh, small intelligence cell, which was at the in the headquarters of the the ground commander in Iraq, General Odiono. And this this unit was really functioning as Odiono's sort of personal intelligence group that uh, reported directly to him and told him what was going on. So Rex got interested in. Um, you know, this business of high value, well, high value targeting, which was, you know, the strategy in Iraq, how we were dealing with the insurgency was to, uh, you know, to identify enemy insurgent leaders, groups all around the country, and either kill them, um, preferable, or arrest them at least, and take them off the battlefield. So he was able, because he had access to all, uh, all information of any kind in the theater, uh, <clears throat> he selected a list of 200 people they'd killed in the previous few months, and then looked to see what had happened then. And he looked to see what had, first, first of all, what had been going on in each deceased leader's area of operations 30 days before he was killed, um, you, know, a dist- you know, an area of like 10 kilometers around, and then what happened in the 30 days after he was killed. And it turned out that in the immediately immediate days after he was killed, attacks on Americans on American troops and American convoys went up sharply uh, in three days by 40%. So it was having entirely a counterproductive effect. It was, you know, if the idea is you kill an enemy leader and 
life become safer for American occupation forces in Iraq, well, it had the opposite effect. It resulted in more of them being killed. And he briefed this to the high command um, in Iraq and said, um, actually told them, he said, it looks like our principal strategy in, um, in Iraq is entirely counterproductive. We should try something else. And it had no effect. Um, Odiono said, well, there's nothing I can do about it because that time it had become, become the system and there was so much you know, bureaucracy and career patterns and organization and money invested in this approach that is impossible to change. I was interested also when you mentioned um, in the targeted killings of the Taliban and it reduced the average age of the leaders from about 35 to about 25. That's right, which is always the effect. You had that effect in Iraq too. Um, You know, so the other thing that Rex Ravallo discovered was that you get someone worse. The leader is always replaced. You get someone who's who's, you know, younger, more aggressive, wants to prove it, prove himself, often avenging a relative. Who, um, just coming back to drones for a second, which countries currently are operating drones in this way where they're assassinating targets in other countries? Well, US, of course, Israel, de- definitely. Um, other people are gearing up. Well, the British now, uh, you know, the British are operating uh, Reapers, uh, which they bought from the U.S. I mean, the Pakistanis want to do it. The Turks, the Turks have operated them. Uh, well, at least they, we operated them on the Turks' behalf and actually blew away a bunch of shepherds. Do we have the international rules in place? Well, I mean... No, 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 no. Um, well, we have international rules. We have a lot of international rules already, like, you know, you shouldn't attack countries that you're not at war with. And we've been driving coaches and horses through them for a while. So, um, you know, so there yes, are... I mean, drones represent a major shift in, in technology. And, and have the ideas or rules in general regarding their use also changed with this shift? No. Um, no, they haven't. You know, there's talk, and, you know, there's like a, there's a lot of human rights organizations are pressing at least for a, some kind of international convention on autonomous weapons, which is thought to be the next thing coming down the pike. Drones that basically control themselves, that you program to say, this is what an enemy looks like, and off you go, and the drone then, you know, sniff out a terrorist or whatever it is you don't like and uh, deal with them themselves. And then, you know, there's the Human Rights Watch, uh, certainly in this country, is... Um, has been agitating for that, which would know, be a good idea. I couldn't um, help but pondering as I was reading the, about the ethics, I guess, of developing military technology. And there really is no way to stop any development of a, of a technology. I mean, even if we think it would be disastrous for everybody, uh, just, I guess, because of the excuse that if we don't do it, then the bad guys will do it. Well, I don't think that's, well, that's maybe the excuse, but I think the real reason you've got to understand, and I tried to emphasize this in the book is what really drives all this is money. Um, so long as there's the incentive to develop, you know, these very complex systems um, uh, to, um, you know, and profit vastly thereby, it's going to happen. Uh, if, you, if you remove that incentive, I mean, we, you know, we are spending, you know, although all conceivable peer com- competitors have gone away, uh, unless you want to talk about the Chinese. But really, you know, compared to what we were facing 40 years ago with the Soviet Union, you know, we don't really have any major threats. But not that that was, even that was a pretty ragged threat too. But, uh, uh, and yet we're spending vastly more on defense than we ever did then. So, you know, it's as long as you allow this, you know, the military-industrial complex, uh, military-industrial and in- 
intelligence complex, as we now have to think of it, um, sort of free reign to sort of conjure up some threat to uh, mishandle it, as they did with Al-Qaeda, uh, ignoring warnings and, things, and then use all that as a justification for this vast expansion of, of spending on you know, these lethal systems. Uh, I think you're going to have it. Andrew, thank you very much for, uh, for taking out the time to, uh, to have a chat with me about your book today. You're welcome. Today, I was speaking to author Andrew Coburn. He's a writer and lecturer on defense and U.S. national affairs, and he's the author of quite a few non-fiction books, including this one, Kill Chain, Drones and the Rise of High-Tech Assassins. You have also been uh, listening to me, Craig Barfoot, ask him questions. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Ciao. Thank you.